A snap federal election means an emergency podcast. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from separate offices because the fourth wave is real and we're not playing around. I'm Glenn Bowerman and this is Spacing Radio, the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. This is a special emergency election podcast, and so to talk about this imminent election, we have Spacing Senior Editor John Lawrence and Spacing Urban Affairs Columnist Professor Tricia Wood. Thank you both for for joining me. Nice to be here. So I guess I wanted to begin this podcast by saying that this election shouldn't happen, in my opinion, and I I think the opinion of a lot of pundits, uh, the reason this is happening is because the Liberal Party thinks they have the numbers to get a majority. I was thinking a more generous take would be that maybe after such an unprecedented amount of time, uh, you know, a couple years now, that there should be some kind of referendum on, like, either we give the Liberal Party an attaboy or we give some other party a chance to take over uh, if this is just going to continue on and on. But uh, I'm kind of the the opinion that this is uh, maybe a little uh, cynical political move. Um, I don't know how you guys feel. (laughs) I. Mostly agree. I mean, usually minority governments end because, uh, you know, because it it's forced to end. Either the 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 government or the the party in power sort of puts forward some kind of fiscal motion that is unpalatable to the other the opposition parties, and they're defeated on a confidence vote, or um, you know, they just uh, they just sort of s- stop being able to agree on anything, and the business stops, and then they go to an election. So. Um, but that wasn't happening in this case. Yeah, I think I think the timing is unfortunate on two fronts. First of all, that it's only been less than two years since the last election, but also, um, you know, timing of late summer when everyone is turning their attention to back to school and back to school is also, um, you know, a pretty tense business because the fourth wave is is clearly kicking in. And while we were all certainly hoping the fourth wave wouldn't kick in. It was, you know, projected that that was a, a strong possibility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very difficult to pay attention to federal party platforms uh, at this time and to get everybody kind of even interested in in the issues that are at hand. And there are some fairly important issues at hand. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, we're, we're going to specifically talk about what this election means to cities uh, in Canada. And I was thinking this is especially detrimental for cities who are probably experiencing the most of the new cases, you know, major city centers, uh, that might actually hurt the liberals in the end, uh, the, the places that are, uh, should fear the most of getting, getting into a, a large congregate setting to cast their ballot, um, are probably the, the places that they have a good shot at winning. <laughs> and, and it's also cities that are really hurting the most from the pandemic who will be, I think, asking the most, you know, the city budgets, especially transit budgets have taken such a huge hit. And so there's, I would think there would be a big ask to, to, to get, you know, successfully reelected. I think that you could argue somewhat in the opposite direction on the timing issue Mm -hmm. for two reasons. One is that I, I think that, you know, after this, summer and going into COP26 in Glasgow in the fall, the politics around climate change and carbon reduction, I think, is shifting. Like, it's shifting rapidly. And 
I certainly wouldn't mind a government being elected that would have a clear mandate to to kind of up the ante on the existing commitments, which are pretty modest. And the second thing is the, you know, and Trish, you mentioned this, you alluded to this a moment ago, is this, you know, is the quantum of the relief and the support required um, for communities, for cities, and, you know, other sort of important infrastructure um, institutions like long-term care facilities. So, you know, we've come through this period when there's been a lot of public spending on COVID relief. And, you know, do we need, do we need even more do we need to make it different? So that I think is actually kind of a valid way. It's a valid sort of question to ask, but you know, this could also have been done through a throne speech. Right. Um, I, I wanted to begin with housing because I think, you know, it's early days in the election, although it's a short election period. Uh, I think housing, uh, we've seen the most sort of meat from, uh, from each of the parties. Uh, so I wanted to start by talking about the conservatives plan, and their sort of marquee plan is is to build uh, 1 million homes in three years, which is eye-catching. Uh, don't know how they're going to pay for it. It's not costed yet. And then I also, I meant, I'm going to mention this because it's part of all three of the major parties' plans. Uh, uh, they're talking about a foreign investor ban. Uh, so does anyone have thoughts on, on both of these from the conservatives? Not really. Um, you know, it's an, it's an ambitious statement. I, I don't think I'd call it a plan. And there's also a lot, I mean, I don't know if that's the only aspect of housing you want to talk about, but there's so much more oh, to the question of, of of housing, right? That we, you know, we, we need to build a whole lot more housing. We need to talk about uh, who's going to pay for and own that housing. We need to talk about, you know, possible um, national moratorium on evictions. We need to talk about, um, I mean, it's difficult in terms of jurisdictions, I know always, right? But we need to talk about what's happening to people who are uh, up against police forces or being evicted from, you know, park places and other public places. Um, You know, housing is a crisis. Housing is related to the opioid crisis. Housing is related to a lot of other health crises and mental health crises. Housing is related to so many other issues. And so, you know, lovely to say, ah, we're going to build a whole bunch of houses. That's that's not a housing plan. The housing crisis is is a huge crisis now with many tentacles. Absolutely. But I think I don't see that even the the more left-wing parties have have talked about anything like an eviction moratorium. Or... I think the only folks I know made any reference to it are the Greens. Okay. Um, none of the, but no, I would not say any of the political parties have the kind of, you know, national housing strategy that, that we need. I was just going to say that the, um, so like the, the Tories, pledge is it's one of those promises where you you know you promise something that probably would happen anyway like it would be organic growth in the in just the you know sort of business as usual development or you know with some additional kind of uh, lubricants for you know for people who are borrowing money in like what i notice so the commonality between the tories and the liberal platform is that you know they've clearly focus grouped it and they, you know, they, they want to attract middle income people, people who are aspiring to be middle income people, millennials who are kind of trying to enter the housing market. And so the liberals in the last six years have actually created some fairly granular housing policy, but what's in this housing bill of rights is just, you know, it's like fluff essentially. And it, it, 
you know, it seems designed to kind of, um, it's sort of, it's signaling a lot more than it is actually substantive. And the the NDP is, you know, as Trish rightly points out, it's not that much better. And I don't think that the, this, you know, this rent supplement idea is, you know, workable. I mean, I think the federal government is, the federal government's very uh, challenged to get involved in any kind of housing policy. But at that level of detail, to me, seems it seems very unlikely to happen for listeners that that's the ndp's plan to have uh, up to 5000 a year uh for rent for uh families in need yeah yeah you talk about the the liberals housing plan uh that we can talk a little bit more about because they actually you know we have uh 6 years uh them in power uh, albeit two of them a, a minority and focused mainly on the pandemic, but like we can at least judge them on their record of six years. So but what are your thoughts on the last six years? It's like note, note to listeners, you know, Trisha is rolling her eyes towards the ceiling. Um, <laughs> sure. It's it's hard to, I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss the initiatives that have been taken and the efforts that have been made because I'm, you know, I'm in favor of, of, pushing this on every front. And I believe that in most cases, you know, every effort is worth it, even if it only helps really assist with a a cultural shift in our our political thinking. Having said that, it's hard to describe the last six years um, with regard to the housing crisis. I mean, I'm thinking particularly about Toronto, but it's not unique to Toronto. It's hard to see the last six years as anything, but that housing crisis is getting worse. Mm -hmm. So it's not to dismiss the efforts. It's not like because I, I think it's fair to say the government has not ignored it entirely, but but neither have they addressed it adequately and comprehensively because it's only getting worse. I agree that it's getting worse and that um, the so the, the challenge for the challenge for any government, for the federal government, is that housing policy is really like tightly connected to um, interest rates and to. Uh, you know, international capital flows. And on the one hand, if the Bank of Canada raises interest rates to kind of cool down the housing market, that it, you know, it stresses out households who are suddenly, you know, faced with increasing costs. And if they reduce the interest rates to allow for more people to get into the market, then they create inflation and they create these, you know, this sort of this price escalation that we've seen. Uh, so there's at, it, at, at that level, it's it's very difficult. So then you get into the level of sort of uh, government supported housing projects. And so the federal government uh, finally came through on a national housing strategy, which they've been talking about since the early 90s, uh, never did anything about, finally put some serious money into it. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, I would credit the liberals with putting serious money into it. It was like, you know, it's over $40 billion over a decade or something like that. Uh, so that's a non-trivial amount of money. And it does go towards, you know, non-market um, housing. Uh, I'm just working on a piece for the Globe about the way some of that money sort of finds its way into projects such as projects in Toronto. And it's one thing to announce all of that money. It's another thing to make sure that it actually hits the ground. So there you've got, you know, all of the layers of complexity that are involved in negotiating those deals. And there's a lot of inertia and there's a lot of, um, you know, which was made worse by the pandemic, to be fair. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are also bright sides like we, you know, and and weird configurations like these, you know, these modular, modular housing 
uh, units for homeless and uh, for people who are, you know, really, you know, have a difficult time getting into the housing market. They were approved very rapidly. The money was there spent. Um, you know, we got an assist from the Ford government, ironically, because of the ministerial zoning orders, which, you know, were in this case uh, useful in beating back objections from residents associations. So it just goes to show that these alignments that when, th- when something positive happens, it's not because it was somebody thought through that this is the way it should go. It's sort of an accident. And then just the last thing I'll say is that this is really in stark contrast to the way things happen in other cities. The the de Blasio administration, whatever else you think about Bill de Blasio, the city of New York has built hundreds of thousands of affordable housing units or restored uh, rental apartments, many of them affordable, um, over the last several years. Even allowing for the difference in scale between the two cities, like a dramatically higher level than what we do. John raises a really important point, of course, which is, you know, the intersection of, of jurisdictions. You can have all kinds of money, but you have to have capacity and political will and land available and permission to build appropriate kinds of housing, um, you know, and, and, and so on. And so how that actually interacts in particular with municipalities uh, and their politics is is definitely part of the problem. And so that's the Liberals' record, um, you know, on the on the campaign trail. So far, they've talked a lot about, and this is a, something as a millennial who's really just not even trying to get into the housing market at this point, my eyes kind of glaze over, but th- their big marquee thing so far has been a tax-free first home savings account for people under 40 for uh, up to $40,000. Is that inspiring uh, at all? Also, uh, one, one billion in loans and grants for rent to own projects. Uh, that's, that sounds a little bit more my kind of thing, but, uh, but yeah, tax-free first home savings accounts. Uh, are these, <laughs> are these exciting to anyone? It helps a little bit, but yeah. it's on the margins. Yeah, And there's always this tension between things that assist people to get into the housing market and the effect of pouring more money into the housing market without touching the people like myself who do own homes and, you know, are sitting on an extraordinary capital asset that's not going to be taxed at all. You know, like the protection of that wealth is that that goes untouched right. like that that's that's apparently sacrosanct and i i personally think that's a, a big part of the problem um so i mean yeah those are not the worst ideas um I, i'm not sure they're the most effective and uh for the ndp we, we, john already mentioned the the five thousand dollars a year uh for for rent for those in need uh they also talked about uh, five hundred thousand for affordable homes in 10 years which again, uh, this is not costed. And this, when I say that, it's not a dig at either of these parties. I don't think anyone's really released a costed platform. These are all just kind of, hey, we're probably going to do this maybe. <laughs> at a national level, that's not very ambitious, right? I mean, it's like 50,000 homes a year. What's the government targeting is um, an annual immigration levels of 400,000 people. Right. Um, you know, I don't see the NDP changing that. So it's, you know, it's not a huge amount. But do they get props for that's at least uh, like a reachable goal? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, I mean, it, again, it's like the Tories promise. It's probably something that would just happen anyway. Right. Okay. 
Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's housing. Uh, I wanted to talk about transit. I don't have like a point for point platform sort of thing for this, uh, because it's, it's mostly been crickets. And I don't know, from my perspective, I've always felt like maybe that's good that maybe at the federal level, you don't want them talking about what kinds of technology or where the routes are going. Maybe you just want a blank check sort of thing. I'm sure that mayors in every city, large and medium size, have uh, transit projects in some degree of um, completion or, or design, or uh, and they're they're desperately hoping that uh, whichever way the political winds change, that that money, uh, you know, whatever money has been promised, is still coming to them. But uh, do do we have thoughts on, you know, has any party really spoken about transit projects in any city? Well, I would say that transit projects aren't the biggest fire uh, for municipalities, uh, it's transit operations right. because transit agencies are $2 million in the hole because of the pandemic. And that's the money. And it's at a scale that I, I, you know, I, I know there's been a call involving the ATU and it's a, a coalition of transit advocates, uh, you know, for the federal government to, to come up with that kind of assistance that, that we're at a, a scale. And I would say that arguably it also connects to climate change mitigation efforts, but that, that, that the federal government has to, has to get involved in, in funding uh, transit agencies because it operations, I think is it's not, it's not to minimize the challenges of the capital cost of, of infrastructure projects uh, for transit, but operations are the bigger fire. I think at the moment there's, there's just, there's this, there's this, big revenue loss and somebody's got to fill it. But I think going along with that is that, and this is not not necessarily something that the federal government can easily fix, is, you know, is finding ways of getting people back on transit, uh, which is not a trivial problem by any stretch of the imagination. And like, it's directly connected to Trish's point about, you know, the operating shortfalls, but it's, that's like the sort of the, you know, it's like a hearts and minds thing, you know, and it, uh, so maybe that smart platform, smart policymaking at the federal level would reward agencies that are finding ways of rebuilding ridership. And, you know, I'm not sure what that would be because we've not had this particular problem before, but um, it's certainly a space where I'd want to see some creative thinking. Yeah, I, I wrote about this early in the pandemic because I was really concerned by comments by our own mayor and actually also by the mayor of New York at the time, uh, you know, around sort of affirming people's anxieties around taking transit in the pandemic uh, in the absence of evidence that transit was actually a dangerous space. And especially the more we know about ventilation, the more we know that actually being on transit is one of the safest enclosed public spaces that you can be in. It's not to minimize the risk, especially the risk to transit workers. But nevertheless, like there, there is this kind of anxiety that's even been affirmed by municipal officials. And I, I agree very strongly with John that we need a proactive effort to get people uh, taking transit again, because our, our urban economies will not recover without people on transit. That's just geometry. Absolutely, <laughs> um, yes. and, and we can and it also has to be, we have to sort of seize this opportunity to make a big shift and it is more than an engineering and planning and so on shift it is a it is a cultural shift that that transit and other forms of active transportation have to become the default way of moving we, you know that just has to be part of any climate change plan we can't we can't allow this what we what we've been through and where i guess we're still going through you know to put people 
in cars in larger number. We need to reverse that in a really big way. Um, and so there does need to be an active effort. And some of that is in just what, what people say and perhaps, you know, kind of a public awareness campaign. But there are things that you can do. Um, people often move immediately to fair incentives. Those have some impact, but they're minor. But there are other things they can do in terms of improving service, frequency, reliability. Those are the things that move people onto transit. And this is where we come back to the operating question. If we don't fill that revenue hole, then agencies are going to be forced to restrict service or not restore service to normal levels, even as ridership returns. And even as even before ridership returns, the people who rely on it need it to have that level of service that it had before. If they're relying on it to get to work, you can't suddenly cut it or they they can't use it anymore, right? And so that operation money is essential because if it, it doesn't matter, you know, how low the fare is, if the service is not frequent, reliable, people won't take it. So you have to restore service or even improve service to get ridership up. And that's operations money. I just want to make one comment about, about capital, because probably there will be some promises around capital spending. And so, like, we know, we're all realists here that, you know, when governments of all stripes get into the business of talking about transit projects, they love subways, right? And, you know, particularly in the GTA. And this is one of those um, topics where I really feel like the climate imperative and the transit planning have to be sort of more cognizant of one another. So subways require an enormous amount of concrete and concrete is like the one of the worst carbon emitting products. So I'd like to sort of see governments sort of connect those dots, right? And, to, um, and you could actually, you know, notwithstanding our tribulations with the Scarborough line, but you could actually build surface rail much faster, take advantage of the fact that there are fewer cars on the road for the, you know, for at least the foreseeable future and get that kind of infrastructure in place or at least started uh, and take advantage of this moment. And then you get the sort of double bang for your buck from a climate perspective. Absolutely. Surface rail, and I know it's boring and unsexy, but buses. Mm-hmm. Bus, buses are so, because it's a vehicle, everyone sort of assumes, oh, we still don't want a vehicle. No, buses are so much more efficient in terms of emissions than cars. They are an excellent replacement of cars, and they are a very cheap and flexible replacement for, for private automobiles. It's something, you you know, with, with a can of paint tomorrow, you can have priority lanes and you can, uh, you know, install that really quickly. And that is the speed at which we need to be moving people uh, out of private automobiles. It's, it's, it's tomorrow because we couldn't do it yesterday. So it's tomorrow. I mean, uh, looking over the sort of the bullet points of, of the party's uh, energy and environment pitches, um, you know, and we can tra- transition kind of seamlessly into that. The only specifics I see about, um, you know, electric vehicles are, are the conservatives, but they're specifically talking about personal vehicles. So it seems like if someone wants to run on a policy of helping municipal governments, you know, uh, switch over to re- retrofit uh, fleets to to electric buses, um, that that seems to be up for grabs. Maybe there's already something existing in the the liberal plan, but uh, I don't know. No one doesn't seem to be talked about this election. So see, not that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, and I do agree with your earlier point that we don't really want federal officials getting too much into the weeds of 
what transit infrastructure is going to be or what service is going to be and, and so on. There are many decisions that are absolutely best made at the local level by the agencies themselves. Nevertheless, the scale and the cost, including the sort of the supply chain issues of electrification of buses, merits uh, a national strategy. I mean, the electrification of everything, to quote the Global Mail's uh, series uh, last week, you know, if we want to just sort of segue like a, a couple of inches to the left to uh, climate policy, right? Yeah, please. That I mean, that's where, like, I, I really do think that that should be the defining issue of this election is we've just been in a massive global crisis, right? It's like a preview. And mm-hmm. so what do we learn from that? We have to learn something. And one of those somethings is that you need to have fairly drastic responses and trying to sort of create an electrical infrastructure that is uses as little fossil fuel as possible um, to displace the use of fossil fuels in other modes, I think is a super important thing that the federal government can do, but it really requires the federal, mu- federal muscle to get involved with that. You know, the topic that I've been trying to write a lot about is, you know, how do cities get off their addiction to uh, natural gas as a home heating fuel. Um, it's a really, really difficult problem. And, you know, some of that is going to be done by provincial energy regulators. But I think that the federal government has a big role to play in that and, and you know, in priming the pump and creating the right regulatory environment. Yeah, well, I, I think a good way to start this conversation further is, uh, I guess the liberals are just resting on their laurels. Um John, you you write a lot about energy policy and this kind of thing, especially in in terms of how it pertains to cities or affects cities. Uh, so, what have the liberals' record been in terms of climate policy? I mean, there are things that are not great, such as buying a pipeline. But <laughs> have they been doing things for cities? Are there any federal policies for cities that will help mitigate climate change? I personally think that the most important thing that the federal government, this, the liberal government did mm-hmm. with the big assist from Ford was the carbon tax. And uh, the premier did his part to make sure that we got a Supreme Court decision uh, validating federal government's role in Im- imposing. So don't at me, please, listeners, that I know it's not a carbon tax. It's a, uh, But that's, you know, price on carbon is the big thing. And that's a strong piece of important piece of the record. So I agree that it's the most significant thing that they've done. I don't agree that carbon markets generally have enough of a record that we should be that excited about it. I I had a hard time even engaging in like caring about one side or the other of that debate because relative to what we need to do, it's so small. There are all kinds of exaggerated statements about the impact that it's had, um, particularly in British Columbia, uh, you know, with what they have done there. The global financial crisis was at least as significant in reducing emissions as the carbon tax there was, if not more so. Canada's emissions record is embarrassing. It's absolutely horrific. If you chart, as some people have done, as their own auditors have done, where we're going versus what we have committed to do, like it, it's just embarrassing. Um, the federal government's own auditors concluded about two years ago now, I think it was, that it was clear that there was no plan to meet the goals, you know, the, the commitments that we've made, the international the international agreements to reduce our emissions. Our emissions continue to go up. And, and it is in this last year globally, even with the reject, reduction of driving and, and some production and so on, emissions are still going up. 
we need really, really big action. And we absolutely have not seen that. And I don't see big action in anybody's plan. I don't see the, the political will. So um, I, again, like, like I was saying before, so it's not to dismiss and say, well, so they've ignored it, but we have to walk, you know, many miles and we had a debate about whether or not to move the first inch. Right. And, and we are supposed to be excited because yeah, we're actually moving that first inch. Like, great. I'd rather move the inch than not move the inch, but we have miles to go. So this is really, really inadequate. I think something that I struggle with, and maybe this is just my own thing, but you know, when, when people talk about emissions levels and reducing them, I don't know what those numbers mean. So when the NDP says they're going to set a target of reducing emissions by at least 50% from 2005 levels by 2030, I don't like, I hear reduce emissions. I'm like, great, do it. But like, is that anything? <laughs> like, are we supposed to be like, this is going to really change the game? I don't think people appreciate actually just how bad Canada's record is and just how far we have to go. I think there are a lot of people who hear commitments to, you know, percentage reductions of this or that, which are the kinds of international commitments we've made. And I think that sounds good, but they have no sense of, of, of what it means and just how difficult it's going to be to get there and just how detailed a plan you need to get there. I mean, one of the things that's good about quantifying a commitment is it commits you also to measure things like emissions from various sectors and then have individual plans to, you know, so how you're actually going to meet those goals. We haven't at the federal level, we haven't done a very good job of actually making those detailed plans, you know, that we make commitments, but, but there's no plan on, on how we actually get there. And so there's also no, this speaks to John's earlier comment, there's no kind of priming of the the discursive pump to kind of get people ready to understand what it means and what it's going to look like. And it comes full circle back to where we started to. It also has everything to do with housing and land use planning. If we continue to build housing spatially the way we are and compel people to commute long distances, we will not solve this. And if we continue to allow the lot sizes and space between like the kind of suburban model that you also find in cities you know, of single family dwellings instead of more efficient, you know, multifamily dwellings, we will not meet this. Like it, it is, it is into absolutely everything and especially everything that cities deal with, but we do not have that plan and we need that plan. Well, let's talk about that. Cause John, you wrote a book about it. Uh, federally, is there anything that, that a federal party can do to sort of address the land use and the way we misuse it, the suburban sprawl, the the yellow belt that we talk about in Toronto of single family zoned housing? Uh, or is that really the purview of like the provincial power and, and the municipal zoning laws? To contain sprawl, for example, um, you, you know, the federal government's tools, you know, won't, won't ever be able to reach into land use planning. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, that's the constitution. But, you know, if they, if you have policies that penalize the things that contribute to sprawl, like the price of gas, like the price of carbon intensive materials, like asphalt or concrete, you know, then you can begin to sort of rearrange the economics of sprawl, right? Which is, I mean, you know, the federal government is responsible for the national economy. Um, and so in, you know, it can, it can kind of get at it in a roundabout way or try it anyway. And I, you know, I do think that Trisha, I take your point about the, about, you know, we plan for the first inch, but, you know, I 
do think that at a certain point, you know, the price signals are really important, right? So if I buy those great big stupid pickup trucks that Marcus G wrote about, you know, and I could fill it up without too much pain, why wouldn't I? Or if, you know, conversely, if if I could buy, you know, if my power was sufficiently inexpensive or the the natural gas that I use in my house was quite costly, I would shift to a less fossil fuel intensive form of space heating. And, um, you know, and so would landlords. Uh, so and those are the things that the federal government does have some control over, but they won't do it because it upsets Alberta and, you know, and it's upsets voters who want to become middle-class people and so on. It's funny you bring up the the price of gas because the party so far that has something to do with it uh, in their platform is the NDP party. They they want to make sure that there's not like pr- price gouging and monopolies. It's kind of pocketbook issue. So, uh, I mean, that that's our left-wing party, uh, and they want to make sure that gas is nice and cheap as well. Um, it's complicated, and you see the kind of policy suggestions that you have out of the NDP around the cost of uh, of gas, of of home heating fuels, and, and so on, come out of parties on both the left and right who are trying to you know, speak to voters who are concerned about the everyday cost of living, because there is a cost Mm -hmm. to the kind of changes that we need to make to uh, mitigate and now adapt to to climate change and and survive it, right? Um, And it it really is a question as to on whose shoulders is that going to fall? We also know there's an even larger cost if we don't do anything. I was going to say, there's really no avoiding this question. We managed to avoid it quite a lot anyway, but there really isn't any avoiding the cost. The cost is going to come. It's either going to be large or it's going to be huge. Um, but it is a serious issue. And it and it is a, a question of not only who pays for it, but do we individualize that cost, you know, through kind of, you know, taxes on particular things, or do we draw it from, from general revenue, um, which is arguably a more equitable way of doing it because we we tax wealth rather than you know usage and i i do agree that pricing does have an impact on behavior you can cost things to not only put them out of reach of people so they make different decisions but also just i agree with john that even just pricing them surfaces the the other kinds of costs and and you know makes one a little bit more aware of the impact of certain decisions. Nevertheless, a lot of research into changing behavior suggests that that cost is, is a, has a fairly limited impact. It has some impact and then it kind of stops. Making things easier for people to do, you know, making the the you know the positive one, the, the behavior we want to encourage, you know, the default, the thing that's easiest as well as least expensive, is how you really shift it. Partly because the people who really drive cultural thinking are the people with the most money who just pay their way out of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like I'll use myself as an example in that my house is heated by natural gas. And I think all the time about how do I change that? But I don't really have the first clue how to go about that. I don't even know what it costs. It's not really about what it costs. It's that it's that it would be a complicated involved thing that I would have to do research and work and look into it and so on. And I don't know how to go about doing that uh, in, in, in the sense of not that I'm, you know, unintelligent. I, I do research for a living. It's not like I can't do that. I don't really have the time to do that. But if you come to my door and say, we're doing this, it's going to show up on your tax bill. You're welcome. Then it's done. And it's similarly, you know, and I, I'm sorry to always come back to transit as I do, but we see similar things. And in terms of changing ridership behavior and improving 
ridership, it is in making it easier, more accessible, more reliable, and so on that really changes ridership. Fare does have an impact, and the cost of transit is not a trivial issue um, for a lot of households, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I do want to reduce the cost of it as well. Uh, I'm really against taxing mobility generally because mobility is so essential to an urban economy. Nevertheless, there are so many other things that have a bigger impact. And I also am always concerned about how we actually pay for these things in terms of tax revenue. And when we individualize it into the price of gas, I do think we should raise the price of gas. I'm not against that. But do you know what I mean? That that's an, that is raising the revenue to pay for this thing that is a societal issue that should really come from, I, I think, a general revenue tax on, on wealth. Let me just point out, um, you could debate back and forth about whether it should be a you know, tax on a specific commodity or a general tax. I think that there's also an important point to make, which is that as a society, we have raised taxes before and the sky did not fall. So this is a contra point to your point, Trish, but I'm going to recall the uh, Liberal NDP coalition under Paul Martin in 2005 or 2006 brought forward for the first time a gas excise tax, a federal gas excise tax, you know, which the, that funding is used to support green initiatives and transit and so on in cities. It survived uh, regime change. The uh, the federal Tories, in fact, the Harper government, in fact, raised it. And it's still part of our system of taxation. Um, and the sky didn't fall. And, you know, transit agencies get more funding as a result of that. And so, you know, so it doesn't have to be that. It could be something else. But I think that generally, you know, we want to make changes in society. We can't be pretending that this isn't going to cost anything. So the liberals have said, okay, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to tax REITs, we're going to tax, you know, banks and so on. And it's like, okay, yeah, go for it. I mean, I, you know, the U.S. government has raised, you know, corporate tax rates again after the Trump cuts, you know, ours are still lower. So let's do that. And let's spend the money in ways that will reduce carbon footprint, reduce our emissions, do all of those things. Absolutely. And you can also wind up in a really positive feedback loop in that if you raise revenue, raise taxes to raise revenue for things like transit, you improve mobility in cities that generates more wealth, right? That stimulates the urban economy. One of the lovely things that transit does is it also improves economic participation. You know, then it, it generate it continues to generate the wealth and it, it starts, you know, positively feeding itself. We're not in that kind of positive feedback loop at the moment. We're in a very negative one, but we could we could shift it. So maybe that's what this election should be about, is shifting that mindset, right? It's like saying, okay, let's look at places where taxes and revenues are raised sufficiently. So we get that positive feedback loop because we need it for sure. What I'm concerned that this election will be about is, uh, and it so far really has been, is things like vaccine passports, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, but beyond things like airline transportation, certain things like that, uh, you know, federal public sector workers, I don't really know if cities need that kind of federal guidance about things like vaccine passports. I, I think that's what provincial governments and, and, uh, you know, municipal medical officers of health I think that's really their purview. Or or do we during this election need to talk about what the federal government is going to do, not not financially, but like in actual sort of health policy wise, help dig us out of this pandemic and, you know, try and flatten the curve of the oncoming fourth wave? 
I mean, I think the only thing that that debate does at the federal level is it serves the those who want to kind of shift the conversation to the pandemic as a borders issue instead of the pandemic as a, as a community issue that we, you know, public health issue that we have a responsibility to to manage internally. Yeah, Premier Ford's been trying to do that for... <laughs> Yeah, and, and others, you know, yeah. and and it's not unique to Canada either. Yeah. And I think it's really un- unfortunate. Um, it would be really nice if you know a better conversation about public health in general came came out of came out of this experience. But that's not happening so far. But do we need the federal government's as- assistance with this? Not really. Mm. Um, maybe especially because that uh, largely due to a lot of community and professional organizations you know, conversations on vaccine mandates and passports and, and so on, you know, are, are really picking up steam at the moment. I think that's, that's very positive. doesn't really, that's not something we really need the federal muscle as you've described earlier, you know, to do. And, and there are these other issues that we've been talking about where money and political pressure from the central government would really make a difference, you know, where nobody else really has that, that kind of, that kind of authority and, and, <laughs> capital mm-hmm. right that, that no this is this is not something we should really be spending all our time in this election talking about i'll take a different view on that um so i think that we're seeing this sort of like in accelerating move by a lot of organizations both public and private sector to require vaccines and i don't actually mind that we're having that big conversation and that the election helps focus that i totally understand that this is a perfect wedge issue for the liberals was intention was designed to be a wedge issue and you know so be it but like i do feel that we you know we we spent a lot of 2021 trying to push people to get vaccinated using you know moral arguments and using you know gentle suasion and we have to find a way to get past the pandemic or at least to you know, kind of contain it so it becomes an endemic. And this is a way of kind of getting everybody's attention, I think. And I don't mind that conversation at all in the federal election context. But ultimately, you'd prefer it to be about like things like the environment and, you know, changing that kind of mindset. Yeah. Uh, Well, Trisha and John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion. Uh, To be honest with you, I was not excited about... uh, thinking about the election. I didn't want this election, but I think we've teased out some things that are actually worthwhile for, um, you know, voters in, in urban centers to, to really think about. So I, I thank you both for your perspectives. Thanks, Lynn. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell everyone in the advanced polling center I'm sure you're all rushing to go to. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or ratings on iTunes can help us reach new listeners, so if you have the time, please do that. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82, that's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. The new optimism theme issue of Spacing Magazine is now in stores, so you can find that wherever fine magazines are sold. In the meantime, remember... 
The federal election takes place September 20th. Cheers. Cheers.